You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Monica Bay. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech here on Law Technology Now. some amazing people. We're at the Above the Laws new Academy for Private Practice. We are in Philadelphia. This is the second program that they have done. Adam Cameras is here with me today. Thank you very much for being here. It's so much fun and we have the big boss here. And we just finished the keynote speech that was done by Gary Sanga and also a Codex fellow. So yay, Stanford. It was absolutely amazing, and I've dragged him over to force him to basically say it all over again. So I'm going to put the microphone to you and have you start with number one. But first, tell us what you told us about why it was a miracle that you got this. Sure. So as a bit of a background, I'm a former securities lawyer turned serial entrepreneur. I've been told I'm one of the few serial legal tech entrepreneurs that are out there. And I really just talked about my own story, and it's a bit of a background. My first startup, Intelligize, which helps with SEC filings, ended up being a pretty big success. You know, we had 50% year-over-year growth every year. We sold to most of the Amlaw 100. I did a significant portion of that selling. We even sold to the SEC. So it was a fantastic experience, and Intelligize was recently acquired by LexisNexis, and a fantastic journey as well. So it sounds great, but I really should have failed. The secret is that if you look at the qualities that make a great entrepreneur, I lacked every one of them. I had no business experience to start with. As a lawyer, I saw danger everywhere you look, which is not a good skill set to have when you're taking these type of risks. I'm an extreme introvert, very uncomfortable with public speaking and sales. And top it off, I'm Canadian, didn't even have a work visa in the U.S. The sector I entered, SEC filings, was super mature. Thomson Reuters, the 800-pound gorilla, had 100% share. And my timing was perfectly terrible. We launched it for the start of the financial crisis. Yet we succeeded because I made every mistake in the book, but luckily for me, I learned from them. And the talk consisted of just the lessons I learned from the trenches. And before we go into number one, tell us a little bit more about your background. I know, as I've already bragged, that we're both at Stanford, but what other things are you doing with the law school here? Sure. I teach at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. I teach business law. And the class I I nickname How Not to Get Screwed Over in Business is (laughs) the nickname for my class. I'm involved with Stanford Codex. That's where I do my research. I think Stanford Codex is one of the premier legal tech think tanks in the world. And so just a great center for legal innovation. And I'm also the CEO of LitIQ, which is my second startup. Congratulations. So start with number one about sales. I think that 
you know, what I mentioned is that life is sales and sales is marketing. My sales is life rather. I just can't emphasize enough the importance of sales. I think that people in the legal services sector have a pejorative opinion of sales. They think it's somewhat less than noble. And what I wanted to emphasize is there's a difference between a snake oil salesman and someone that's trying to offer value and trying to get a client or a customer there. Because the default is people are skeptical and you need to get them there. And offering value is not a bad thing. The beauty of sales in my opinion, is that you can learn it. It's not something that's innate. Some of the quick pointers that I, w I wanted to emphasize in today's chat was, one, building rapport is important. And to build rapport, you have to find commonalities. Surprisingly, one of the best places to find commonalities is right in the beginning when you're doing the small talk. Small talk is critical. I found that nine out of 10 times, that's when you build rapport, that's when you find commonalities. And again, do your homework, find out what school they went to. Look, end of the day, everyone has family. You can always talk about family. And if that doesn't work, you can always talk about the weather. Adam? I found this really interesting uh, on a number of fronts. You're definitely right in terms of the negative stigma when you mention the word sales to a group of legal professionals or professionals in general. As we were mentioning in the pre-dialogue for this interview, it's we're always selling. Everybody is selling, whether it's in your personal life, with your personal interpersonal relationships, whether it's any transaction you're experiencing, and everybody needs to understand the fundamentals of what sales are to succeed in, you know, in your personal life as well as your professional. So um, I thought it was fantastic that you were highlighting it in the keynote presentation. One question that I had as you were going through there, you mentioned some seminars and books or tools or authors that you'd read or followed, and I know that there's a ton out there. Uh, if you wouldn't mind just sharing some that you've enjoyed or found a benefit of uh, you know, consuming their content or reading their books. Sure. Number one, how to win friends and influence people. I mean, if you haven't read that, go on Kindle. I think Kindle probably offers it for free at this point. Uh, that is the Bible. I mean, just in terms of building rapport and getting people to like you. That's where it starts. After that, look, Zig Ziglar is pretty good. What I personally do is I go to Amazon and I look at their sales bestsellers and just the customer feedback. And that's proven to be very good for me in terms of just getting good quality material. One of the things that I did when I first uh, joined Codex, and I was so terrified they were going to realize that I was a complete fraud and didn't know anything about it. So I had a two and a half hour commute from New York City up to my house in Connecticut. And I have become absolutely addicted to audiobooks. And to me, there is nothing more wonderful to calm you down when you get off the deacon and you have someone reading a story to you. So what I decided to do was, when I started reading a couple of these, I figured a lot of people, especially lawyers, are in the same boat that I was in. I'm also a lawyer. So I started on the Codex blog, a sort of tongue-in-cheek thing called the Codex Book Club, mm -hmm. Chapter 1. And I would write, you know, like whatever book I had read, I'd write a paragraph thing. I had a really silly little one through five, you know, wonderfully it'll change your life to, you know, sucks. Um, and I'm encouraging people to participate in that. But it was a great way for me to give myself a crash course on Silicon Valley, VCs, whatever. So I really resonate with what you're saying. Anything else on that topic or shall we move on to the next one? Other thing I would just add is you know, be careful with 
with marketing. You know, they say that half of marketing spend is valuable. You just don't know which half, right? What I have found to be very, very valuable and effective is inbound marketing. What that means is content creation. Create those blogs, write those articles, make public those client memos, and make sure that Google can find it. And I tell you, it's the most effective form of marketing that I've seen. Your second point really blew me away and I really resonated to it, which is how do you handle defeat in some ways? And you use the word pivot, which is one of my favorite words now. You told us a little bit about you lost two of your employees, et cetera. Tell us how you survived that crucial period. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think that people use the word defeat or setbacks way too often. I think that there's a difference between things taking longer than they should and defeat, right? There's a difference between moving up that learning curve to mastery and defeat. So I think setbacks, defeat, the terms are just overused. It's a process, and I think people just don't appreciate that things take longer than they should. You cannot bat a thousand from that get-go. So defeats, setbacks, that just means you're pushing yourself and you're learning. It's a good thing, assuming that you learn from the defeats and setbacks. Now, during your conversation on the keynote, I had one that seemed like it might be a really ambivalent one, which was saying, go early, mm-hmm. which I everyone preaches and I get that. Is there a danger, though, when you do that, that if the first iteration bombs, you're dead, versus tweaking and getting the value of being able to change it and listen to your folks who are giving you feedback. Where's that line? between When is it too early? Well, for Intelligize, my iterations bombed every year for five years. Every year we'd go back to the law firms and they would say no, and we kept iterating. So we bombed year after year. I think obviously there's a difference between going in front of a thousand people and unveiling your product and getting good feedback. So I'm not saying go present to the world, but I think going to your customers early and getting feedback is always a good thing. You'd be surprised at how patient the market is for your corrections. Yeah, and I guess uh, putting that in the perspective of I'm a solo or a small firm lawyer or an associate at a midsize or, or large firm. Yeah, how would you apply those same fundamentals in terms of launching your business to a practicing lawyer, you know, akin to garnering your first client or garnering the clients that you want for your firm or winning a case? I mean, how, how would that apply to the practice of law? Sure. That means not waiting till you're 100% there. Even if your website isn't perfect, put it up there. Even if you have don't have all that many cases under your belt, put yourself out there. Even if you haven't written or reviewed a lease before, you can pick it up. That means pushing yourself to the boundaries of your comfort level, even when you may not be there. One of the things you said in the keynote really struck me was the concept of, and I may be leaping frog a minute for here, the idea that you have to get your first endorser. And I loved your suggestion of give it to them free if you have to because you just need that logo. Logo. And am I jumping there? Is this a good point for you to talk about? Absolutely. The most powerful incentivizers for lawyers to acquire a product is what I call FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. If 
a firm like Hervath adopts your product, you're off to the races. So how do you get these great firms to make a bet on you, especially when it's early? Again, there are several strategies out there. Again, between giving away a pennies on the dollar, partnering with them, there are several strategies where you may not make money off that initial customer, but getting that logo can be absolutely incredibly valuable and compelling. So uh, I can relate to the concept that there's a lot of reasons people start and build companies. And you mentioned that tech must serve a purpose. What did you mean by that? Sure. What I mean is tech must serve as a force multiplier. It must let you do things at an exponentially better level than you could otherwise do. Fundamentally, tech can only do a handful of things if it's valuable in order of priority. One, it has to help you make more money i.e. can get you more customers, it can help you be more productive. Two, it helps you cut costs. Cutting costs is good because that increases your profitability. Now, a lot of people say, hey, Gary, we're lawyers, we're in a cost-plus business, we charge by the hour. Look, I've never seen anyone being worse off by being more efficient. In terms of cutting away billables, I've never met a lawyer that's had too much time on a particular task. I think work that used to be spent on stuff that can now be done by technology will be spent in other higher value areas. So you have, again, number one, help you make money. Number two, help you cut costs. Number three, help you reduce risk. Legal services is, again, a field where you only get negative reinforcement. No one's going to give you a high five for that great brief or that great contract, but you will get in trouble if you mess up. So risk mitigation is an important facet of an attorney's job and tech can do that. In terms of the value, that's up for you to decide and for the company to provide. One last question from me. If you had it to do over, what are the three things you might have done differently? Sure. Gosh, how do you pick three between the thousands I would have done differently? Um, First thing I would have done is I would have brought in a co-founder. They've done several academic studies where a team of two is typically has a higher rate of success than a team of one. Or three. Or three. Three is the worst from what they said. Absolutely. So I think if I had a co-founder, I think that would have made my life a lot easier. Two, I would have brought on mentors earlier that would have helped me short-circuit some of the hard life lessons I learned. I had to learn the hard way. So I really would have brought in mentors earlier. Three, I think I just would have done a lot more preparation. I basically just jumped, and I would have loved to have learned more about sales and marketing, just coding technology, while I was on payroll for somebody else. Well, if you ever want a second person to go for you, I'll volunteer. Deal, deal. <laughs> we're we're going to hand it over to Adam for the last question. Yeah, I, I think it's, I, I mean, you're at a really interesting place in your life personally. You're just coming off of a really nice liquidity event. We don't have the details about that, uh, but that would also be interesting if at some point we, you know, we could have some of the you know, the, the play-by-play about how that transaction happened and, you know, the acquisition process and, and really what attracted LexisNexis to the product, you know, what was their interest in it? Um, because I think it'd be really interesting for the listeners. I'd like to know that and, and hear about it. But I, I think, you know, for you personally, you know, what's out over the horizon for you? And this is a two-part question, but also, you know, what do you see as the future of legal services. And I mean, that's the real question that everyone's asking. And I think a lot of people have an opinion on it. I personally believe it's, I firmly believe it's really exciting, you know, the opportunities that are out there, but I'd love to hear what's your, you know, kind of 
the next steps for you personally, but you know, what do you see as the global sure. changes that are Look, gonna happen? I think there's a lot of disruption going on in legal services. And I think it's really, really good for the listeners of this podcast. I think that, look, I think there's so much innovation to be had in legal services. I think that it's just waiting for efficiency, productivity, precision enhancements that tech can offer. I think that technology has created an era where solo practitioners and boutique firms can play with the big boy, so to speak. They can leverage technology to compete. I think the era of the big firm is probably coming to an end in the sense that the benefits they provide, you know, loyal clients, whatnot, probably don't exist since the post-financial crisis. And that just brings up a lot of opportunities. I think the future is custom services. I think the future is lawyer branding versus firm branding. And I think that just provides a lot of opportunities for all of your listeners. And can you tell our listeners how they can reach out to you? Sure. You can reach me at my email, gs at litiq.com or via Twitter at Sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A-G-S. Or you can find me on LinkedIn under Grinder Sangha. Well, thank you to you and to Adam. It's been a wonderful conversation and you did a fantastic keynote. So thank you for being with us. I'm Monica Bay, and we'll see you on the next version of Law Technology Now. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.